morning, everybody. Hope you are all ready for some worship this morning. And we're excited to be here, and we miss you guys, but we're excited to worship. Be thou my vision. 
Lord of my heart Not be all else to me Save Thou art Thou my best thought By day or by night Waking or sleeping Thy presence my Thou my wisdom, Thou my true word, I ever with Thee, and Thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, inside Thy true Son, Thou in me dwelling, and I with Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure.
His arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your, your goodness and your forgiveness uh, and that you are worthy of, of all the worship we can give you this morning. Um, we pray for, for Josh as he comes to, to share your word. Uh, we pray that you would uh, empower him to share it powerfully um, and that his words be your words. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Eric and, and uh, Elizabeth, for leading us in worship this morning. Um, today uh, is the fourth in our series on the different aspects of prayer. So, um, so we talked about adoration and thanksgiving and uh, confession. And so now today we're addressing the, the topic of supplication. So um, I think everyone I asked to, to give a sermon all said that they weren't very good at the, the aspect that they were assigned. And I guess I kind of feel the same way. Um, you know, at first glance, it may seem like a very dry topic because you know, we ask God for things all the time. Um, but I think, uh, as I thought about this more, I think oftentimes we aren't really going about this in, in the best way. And um, I, I think that we can all think of things that we prayed for that God didn't answer, um, and at least not in the ways that we wanted. And I think, you know, sometimes we're, we wonder, does God not have the power to to answer our prayers, or um, or is it because he doesn't want to? Um, and I, I don't think so. I think God definitely has the power uh, to to answer um, our prayers and and do what we ask. But he also has the wisdom to know that know what we actually need, as opposed to what we are asking for. Um, I think this became clear to me as a father because my kids ask me for things all the time and. Sometimes there's things that uh, that I know would not necessarily be good for them, like if they ask me for candy right before dinner, um, I'm not going to give in to that request. Uh, so I think that God, in a lot of ways, uh, also has this wisdom. And I think as, as I thought more about this topic, um, even though we ask God for things all the time uh, and we feel that we, we do supplication well, um, I think that we actually have a lot to learn about this topic more than more than I realized. Um, to start to learn about this, uh, let's first look at the book of James. Um, James 4 starts off by saying, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. 
You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And that's James 4, 1 to 3. It doesn't take long in this life to realize that we live in a world where we desire but do not have, as James puts it. Although we start life in a dark, watery womb where all our needs are taken care of without us having to do anything, immediately upon birth, we realize that we lack warmth and love and we cry loudly to get it. Life in this brief interlude between Eden and heaven is characterized by scarcity, want, and striving. And I think that this is really by design. God created us as finite beings so that we would have to rely on him. Although God wants to bless us, he does command us to ask him for things. Many people look at the world and see the suffering and, and scarcity and desperation and include that there cannot be an all-powerful God, good God in control. They propose that if there was such a being, he certainly wouldn't have created this world that's so full of evil. I'm certainly not wise enough to plumb the depths of this question, but I believe that God is all-powerful and he is good. And yet he did create this world and is in control of this world despite the evil that is so prevalent. God knew what he was doing when he created Adam and Eve, and I don't believe that he was taken by surprise when they sinned, bringing evil into paradise. The God that we serve is an omnipotent, omniscient, and eternal God that is on an entirely different plane from Satan or from us. So I don't think that a weak, ineffective being like Satan could even come close to delaying, let alone derailing, the will of God. So I believe that God knew what was going to happen with Adam and Eve in the fall, even before he started creation. I believe that God and Jesus knew that Adam would fall and that Jesus would have to die. But the amazing thing is that God decided to go along with, with this plan and create anyway, despite the pain that it would personally cost him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman and placed them in a garden. Why a garden? Because a garden is the proper habitat for a man and woman to reside in. It's not the wilderness where nature just runs wild and free. That's way too chaotic for us. In the wilderness, we would just die almost immediately. But a garden is not a barren wasteland either, devoid of life where nothing ever changes. A garden is neither a chaotic wilderness or a completely order, ordered, lifeless wasteland. A garden is a place where nature is cultivated and allowed to flourish in a way that allows everything to achieve its maximum potential. In a garden, there is controlled chaos. Things are allowed to grow, but only within proper boundaries. I am by no means a good gardener. Janelle does most of the gardening that we do around our house. But one thing I do know is that a garden takes work. Nature is always trying to turn gardens back into wilderness. You have to weed it, you have to water it, you have to pay attention to it, or else it doesn't stay a garden. It turns into a mess. It takes attention to keep the chaos at bay. But on the other hand, a garden is not just unopposed order either. It would be quite possible 
to keep the weeds out of our yard if we just continually sprayed it with Roundup. There would be no weeds, but there wouldn't be any life there either. A garden is a place where there is a balance of chaos and order, and in a perfect garden, there must have been a perfect balance. I think that often we think of chaos as being evil, but I think in a perfect balance, a, perfect, a certain amount of change and unpredictability is necessary to bring about life. God put the man and woman there in that garden to work it, to maintain that balance. He must have equipped them with the ability to recognize when something was getting out of kilter, when it was becoming too chaotic, and they must have also had the ability to work to restore that order. Maybe that was part of the image of God that he had made them in. After all, that was what God had just spent the last week doing, making order out of chaos. Sometimes when I was younger, I often wondered what the work was that Adam and Eve did. If the garden was already perfect, why did they have to work in it? It, it honestly seemed a little bit dull to me to live in such a perfect place that always stayed perfect. I could kind of understand why they might have wanted to get something more. I think sometimes we, I can also feel this way about heaven as well. What are we going to be doing for these uncounted millennia? Won't we get bored? I don't, I don't know that I have a complete answer for this, but I think since in many ways heaven is portrayed as a restoration of Eden, I know that it will be impossible to be bored there. There was a work of, of a sort that had to be done in Eden, and I think that work was anything but boring and monotonous. The work that they were called to do was to keep the balance and to make it even better to fill the earth and subdue it, take the chaos and make it habitable. Although Adam and Eve in that pre-fall state had everything that they needed, they of course fell, and rather spectacularly. They coveted what was rightfully God's. They desired what they did not have. They did not have because they did not ask, and ultimately they had the wrong motives, just like James said. I wonder what would have happened if instead of listening to the snake and stealing the fruit, if they had asked God instead. This is just conjecture, but I wonder if God would have granted their desires, but in a way that was life-giving instead of life-taking. We see right away in this story the results of desire that is unchecked, that is not brought to God, the giver of every good and perfect gift. We see that even though they gained the knowledge that they lusted for, instead of feeling fulfilled, they felt even more deficient. Having satiated their desire for knowledge without consulting God, they realized that they were naked and they now desired clothing. Again, they chose to try to satiate this desire without asking God and frantically covered themselves inadequately with leaves. We also see that they immediately became fearful of God, the one who could have actually addressed their desires. So we see three spiritual truths emerge from this story. Number one, if we don't ask God, even if we achieve our desired end, we are left unsatisfied and we end up with more desires, not less. Number two, our own efforts to satiate our desires will always be inadequate and ultimately ineffective. 
And number three, failing to ask God will result in distancing ourselves from the source of life and the ultimate object of our desire. God, of course, realized this, and we see his grace at work from the very beginning. Even though they had sinned and failed to bring their requests to him, he made garments of skin to cover them. Just as Susan Simpkins noted last week, this was the very first sacrifice that had to be made in response to sin. Because Adam and Eve did not ask God, death entered the world even from the very beginning. We see a new spiritual truth emerge now. Desire in this post-fall world requires sacrifice to be satiated. Now for the first time, something had to die in order to meet the needs that Adam and Eve had. This has become such a part of our world that we take it for granted now. We are constantly making sacrifices of one type or another. We sacrifice time with our families so that we can make a living. We sacrifice appeasing our desires now so that we can prepare financially for a rainy day. We sacrifice the freedom that we have as single people to enter into a marriage or start a family. Everything that we do in this world between Eden and heaven requires sacrifice of one type or another. The very next story starts to explore this idea of sacrifice further. We find that Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, both of whom make some sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice seems to be a pleasing sacrifice, one that pays off. Abel makes an investment and becomes successful. He's doing well. He becomes the 1% of the post-fall world. Cain, on the other hand, is not doing well. He becomes jealous of what Abel has been blessed with. His sacrifice did not pay off. He desires what Abel has, but he's not willing to make the same sacrifices that Abel did. His desires start to battle within him, as James would say. One part of him idolizes success. He wants the same success that Abel had, but another part wants to bring Abel down. He has a choice. He can make a proper sacrifice, a sacrifice that would cost him something. God tells him that if he does this, he will have the same success that Abel has. Or, on the other hand, he can make an improper sacrifice. He can sacrifice his ideal itself. He can kill Abel, then no one can have the, uh, the success that he desires. Sin is crouching at his door, God says, and desires to have him. God uses a sexual metaphor here. When we allow to sin to crouch at our door, when we refuse to master it, we will enter into a creative union with it, and the offspring that comes forth out of that union will be our own undoing. In any case, Cain chooses not to make the proper sacrifice. Again, he chooses not to trust God, but instead to slay his ideal. The punishment for this is given by God, but in a way, it is also in the natural consequence of his actions. The natural consequence of destroying our ideal, of bringing others down to our level, of demanding a sacrifice of others that we are not willing to make ourselves, is that we end up as a wanderer, always fearful that someone else will do to us what we have done to them. The truth is that here in this world, each one of us is both Cain and Abel, we all have things that other people envy and that we envy our, as well. We all have a choice. We can choose to make the proper sacrifices and be accepted. Or we can choose to try 
to bring others down to our level. The sad truth is that many times we choose not to make the sacrifices that God calls us to so that we can have and, and we forego the blessings that he longs to bestow upon us. This is not just an Old Testament truth. Jesus taught this truth as well. In fact, his life was a testament to the fact that if you want to achieve the greatest possible good, you have to be willing to make the greatest possible sacrifice. Some of the most poignant teaching that Jesus did on the subject of supplication is found in Luke 18. I'd encourage you to turn to this chapter as we discuss it in detail. I'll read it now. Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't feel it, fear God or care what people think. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, you will, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, 
How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. As we read, Luke 18 starts off with the story of the persistent widow. Luke tells us right off the bat that the point of this story is that we should always pray and not give up. This widow earnestly desired justice for herself, and she was definitely willing to make the proper sacrifices in order to get it. She kept coming day after day to the one who was able to grant her request until he fulfilled his duty. She did not take matters into her own hands as Cain did, but humbled herself continually to ask for just, justice. Jesus told us this, not because God is unjust, like the judge in the story, but because true supplication requires faith. It sometimes requires that we persist. But Jesus says that when we ask the right question, we will get our answer and quickly. Sometimes the reason that we don't get the answer as quickly as we think that we should is because we are asking the wrong question. The widow did not specify exactly what the justice should look like. She rightly left that question up to the judge. I remember when I was an adolescent that I thought I had found the right girl that I wanted to marry. I remember praying and praying about that girl and becoming very frustrated and disillusioned with God when it was clear that I was not going to marry her. I remember thinking that I had faith. I, re I had heard that God wanted us to be specific with, my pr with our prayers, and so I, I was very specific. I thought that because of my persistence, I was entitled to marry her. What if, instead of praying that God would make that particular girl fall in love with me, I had prayed that God would grant me a helpmate that would help me fulfill his will for my life? Or maybe, to take a step back even further, that God would allow me to be used by him and give me the necessary relationships that I needed to fulfill his will. The truth is that I was asking with the wrong motives. I was asking because I wanted to fulfill my own pleasures rather than asking with the proper motives. Thankfully, God in his mercy granted me a helpmate that was far beyond what I was able to imagine or even pray for. Fortunately, even though sometimes we ask for the wrong thing and in the wrong way, we are not left abandoned. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Even though we do not know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes for us in ways that words cannot express. That is why communing with the Spirit is so important. The Lord himself can teach us how to pray and what to ask for if we quiet ourselves enough to listen. Sometimes, though, even when we ask the right question with the right motives, we still don't like the answer that God gives us. This was the case later on in Luke 18 with the rich young ruler. This ruler came to Jesus asking the right question, 
Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered first by listening the commandments. The ruler stated that he had followed all of these since he was a boy. Obviously, the ruler had been striving to justify himself before God. But he must not have been totally satisfied with this legal approach, since he had, had taken the time to seek Jesus out and ask him this question. There must have been a question still within his spirit that said they had not quite done enough. He knew in his spirit that he had something that he was not willing to sacrifice, something that therefore was an idol for him, a stumbling block in his path to attaining eternal life. I think in his heart of hearts, this young ruler knew what Jesus was going to say even before he said it, but he might have been hoping they might, that, that he wouldn't say it. When Jesus followed through and named the one thing that this man lacked, named the sacrifice that was necessary to satiate the desire within this man's soul, the ruler's facade came off. He had almost convinced himself that he was righteous, but now he knew exactly what sacrifice was required of him. And as it turned out, he, like Cain, was unwilling to make it. Now, I... I don't want to give the impression that God is always going to require some action on our part in order to bring about the answer to prayer. Sometimes the most difficult thing to sacrifice is our own control of the situation. There may be times where we bring something to the Lord in prayer and the thing that he demands of us is obedience. We see this many times throughout scripture. Saul was deposed as the king not because he was unwilling to make a sacrifice, but because he acted in disobedience. Moses was denied entry into the promised land when God commanded him to speak to a rock, but he decided in anger to strike it instead. At times, the sacrifice that God may demand is that we wait before him in prayer, waiting in obedience until his spirit makes clear what our next step should be. So, how do we ask rightly in prayer? How can we get it right so that we don't walk away sad like the ruler in this story? First of all, we have to ask the right questions. But don't worry if you don't get it right at first. God's Spirit will teach you as you practice prayer how to ask better and better. Maybe instead of just praying for someone's salvation, a better prayer might be, Lord, what could I do to bring this person closer to you? Or maybe instead of dictating terms to the Lord, it, maybe it would be better to just bring the situation to him and rest quietly. Maybe all that he wants you to do is bring the situation to him in prayer. Or maybe he has a task for you, some sacrifice that he wants you to make in order to bring about your answer. Don't just move forward on your own power though. Or like Eve, you could make the situation worse rather than better. Sometimes we can feel guilty about supplication, like we aren't doing it enough or in the right manner. I know that at times my prayers are more like a shopping list than a conversation. I feel like if I just mention something enough times in prayer, then God will have to bring about the answer that I want. And sometimes I feel guilty that I haven't been praying enough about certain situations or that I haven't used the right words or some other such nonsense. I read John 14, 14 without remembering John 14, 13. 
In John 14, 14, Jesus says, You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I act as though these are the magic words. If I just add in Jesus' name to whatever selfish desires I have, I think that God will have to answer my request. The verse before this puts it in context, though. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There is a reason that God wants us to ask him, so that we can recognize where God is working and see the Son and the Father glorified. I have to confess that I am not always a good listener. This doesn't come as a surprise to anyone who knows me well. Sometimes at work, another physician will tell me things that they have done for a particular patient. And as they go on, sometimes my eyes start to glaze over and I start to daydream. And when they're done talking, I ask a question that if I had just been listening intently, I would have already known the answer to because they already told me. Usually, they are gracious and just tell me again. But the truth is that the process of asking the question prepares my mind to receive the information that they wanted to convey to me in the first place. I think to some extent, this is why God commanded us to pray. There's so much around us that he is at work doing that our mortal finite minds cannot even determine what he is up to. When we ask him, though, to work in a specific circumstance, this prepares our mind to be able to see how he is working. Whereas if we had not made the request, we, it might have occurred without us even perceiving it. When we pray, we must be prepared. There may be a sacrifice that God is requiring of us. It may be to lay aside an idol, like the rich young ruler in Luke 18. It may be to wait in obedience, simply waiting for the Lord to work. The truth is that, God, that the Lord does desire to bless us, but not simply with temporary earthly answers. He has the entirety of eternity in view. His blessings and answers to prayer are those which bring us closer to heaven, not closer to earth. The rich young ruler walked away sad because he thought the costs were too high and the benefits too few and out of reach. There's an old story about the way to catch a monkey. The way that you catch a monkey is that you take a jar with a narrow neck, just big enough that the monkey can fit his empty hand into it. You fill it mostly with stones so the monkey can't carry it off. Then you scatter some treats around the jar and you put some into the jar itself. The monkey comes along and eats the treats around the jar and then tries to grab the treats in the jar. Soon he finds out that he can't take his hand out of the jar without dropping the treats. Then you have him. You can just walk right up and pick him up. The monkey does not understand sacrifice. He cannot sacrifice the treats to save his freedom. Although we are smarter and wiser than a monkey, far too often we hold on to the treats and sacrifice the freedom that God is longing to bestow on us. When we are faced with desire, the right thing to do is to ask God. Even if we ask with the wrong motives initially, his spirit will guide us. If we create the space and allow him to teach us the right questions and give us the right motives. Maybe we have to take a step back and understand what we are indeed asking for. 
Sometimes when things are not going well for a patient at the hospital, if they've run into a few complications or setbacks, the patient and his family start getting anxious. They start peppering me with questions. What's the worst case scenario? What if this next intervention doesn't work? What are all the contingencies? Sometimes in the past, I tried to answer all their questions. I often found that the more information I gave them, the more anxiety they had. The reality was that they didn't want to know what the worst case scenario was that I could conjure up, because I could conjure up some pretty bad scenarios. More recently, I realized that the patients and their families are, are really feeling out of control, and these questions are often their best attempt at trying to regain control. The problem is that they lack the experience and the knowledge that I have to put the answers that I can give them in their proper context and me just supplying them with factual answers often opened up their eyes to situations that were even more dire than they had realized in the first place. Now, having realized that I've been going about this the wrong way, I often try to delve deeper in to answer the deeper questions that the patients have that underlie these factual questions that they're asking. The real questions that they are asking me are, am I going to be okay? Do you know what you are doing? And what can I, as the patient, do to help my recovery? When I address these questions, rather than the questions that they are posing to me, I can see, that I can see their anxiety level go down in a way that I never did when I simply asked, answered their superficial questions. I think it is this way with God as well. Sometimes when we ask him superficial questions, like, can I please marry this particular person? Rather than the more deeper questions of, can you please give me all that I need to fulfill your, your will? We end up more confused rather than, uh, rather than reassured. God is longing to answer the deeper questions, the things that we really need and to show us what his will is for each of us. Finally, God does not want us to hide from him in fear and shame. Although we may not have completely obeyed his command to ask us, ask things in his name before, today is the day of salvation. The past is in the past, but the future is unlimited. Create the space to spend time before him in prayer. Allow his spirit to guide your requests. He will bring to mind people and situations to pray for. And he will let us know what he is calling us to do in each situation. Allow the space and be prepared to be amazed at what he will do on behalf of us and the people that we care for. Remember that when we feel like we have something that we lack, ask God, if we try to fulfill our desires apart from him, we will end up less satisfied, not more, even if, we are, even if we achieve the desire that we set out to achieve. Number two, when we do set out to achieve our desires on our own efforts, we will ultimately be ineffective, just like Adam and Eve tried to cover up their nakedness with the uh, leaves. And number three, failing to ask God 
will distance ourselves from him and eventually result in us fearing him and, uh, and ultimately separating ourselves from the object of our desire. And finally, when we do ask God, be listening for what he will have to do, have us do. Uh, what sacrifice he will ask us uh, to make in order to see his, uh, his will come to pass. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for this time this morning and uh, for the scripture that you have given us. Uh, help us to, um, to know how to come before you in prayer, um, to know that you are the giver of every good and perfect thing. Um, help us to always seek you and not strike out on our own, um, but be willing to make the necessary sacrifices uh, that you are calling us to. In your name, amen. Lay down. 
happiness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything. It's your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Cause all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath goodness of God. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. All right. Um, let's just pray as a, a sending. Um, Lord, thank you for this service this morning and for each person who was involved in it. And uh, be with us this week as a congregation. Help us to fulfill your will among us. Um, in your name, amen. Because all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so The goodness of God. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God.